Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management, online fundraising, and volunteer management software that helps small to medium nonprofits like First Tee of Greater Akron. After just one year with Boomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear their experience or visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising. And so there are two things that prevent us from optimizing that fullest version, experiencing that fullest version of ourselves. One of them is that we don't understand where well-being comes from. And we don't therefore do what's required to give ourselves the inputs around connection and relatedness that would allow us to feel that. And then we don't do a very good job of addressing trauma. Welcome back to What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Neon One. Today, I'm interviewing Gabriel Cram. Gabriel is a convener of the Restorative Practices Alliance, co-founder of the Academy of Applied Social Medicine, and founder and CEO of Hearth Science. In this conversation, Gabriel explains the powerful benefits of cultivating a state of wholeness and balance rooted in our thoughts, reactions, and connection with others. I reached out to Gabriel after reading an article on the polyvagal theory recommended to me by my dear friend, Karen Mulvaney. The polyvagal theory breaks down the difference between sympathetic, ventral, and dorsal responses in our bodies. And if I've already lost you, don't worry. Gabriel uses water in its various states, liquid, steam, and ice, as a powerful visual to help us understand our nervous system and identify the states in which our bodies are experiencing life at any given moment and why they have transitioned into that state in the first place. Once we understand this framework and more about our nervous systems, it is so much easier to find the right practices to move us towards embodiment and wholeness. There is a process to achieving this balance, a true mind-body connection, and Gabriel has some wonderful tools to help us get started. He explains why true self-care is about so much more than any particular posture or activity. It's about a deeper dive into our ancestral-inspired human responses, deeply embedded traumas, and the role of social connection in creating safe spaces where we can rest, reset, and heal. I personally got a lot of clarity in this episode about why certain self-care practices have never seemed to work for me. And I think you're going to learn a lot about why your body goes into a more anxious steam state in certain circumstances versus a more overwhelmed and paralyzed ice state in others, and the different ways we can connect ourselves back to a liquid state, a state of embodied and ideal wholeness. And we wrap up the episode with a lot of actionable tips for coming back into our bodies and staying there. There are so many takeaways inside this episode. So let's dive in so you can meet Gabriel. Welcome everyone. I am so thrilled to be here today with Gabriel Cram. Gabriel, welcome to What the Fundraising. Valerie, thank you. I'm happy to be here with you. Thanks for the opportunity. I am so excited for this conversation. I have to tell you one of my deep 
close friends who was at one time a donor of an organization I ran is the one who sent me an article of yours that then sent me on the journey around your work. So it all feels just really serendipitous and special that we're having this conversation today. Why don't we start with you just giving everyone a little background on you and your work and what brings you to today? Thanks, Mallory. So the article that you're speaking about is an article that we published in Psychology Today. And it's an article about the polyvagal theory, which I feel like we're going to talk about probably deeply today. And it was looking at it through the lens of water. And this work to bring neurophysiology through an elemental lens, through the lens of water, which is so fundamental to our experience, is emblematic of the kind of work that we do. So our work, it brings together neuroscience, it brings together neurophysiology with ancestral awareness technologies. I have the good fortune to be the founder and CEO of an organization that's called Hearth Science. Hearth as in fireplace, as in the ancestral center of the village from which we come. A lot of our work is about helping people come home to the fullest, most thriving version of themselves. And because we're working often with modern people, that really is looking at the physiological dimension of what that means. I'm excited to have this opportunity to speak with you and to see where our conversation goes. And I'm really here to be useful to you and your audience and excited to explore with you. Why don't we start with that piece around fullness and wholeness? Can you talk to me a little bit about what that means for people to lean into that version of themselves and what is typically holding them back or missing for them to be able to realize? That's a really deep question. We've spent (laughs) the last 25 years leaning into the study of that question. It was a very personal question for me, and it's been the guiding kind of professional question that our work has emerged from. And I would say that one of our mentors is a woman named Dr. Darsha Narvaez. She's a transdisciplinary researcher in psychology. She's one of the world's leading experts on the relationship between neurobiology and human morality. And I think the easiest way to answer your question is to defer to her work, which really says that small band hunter-gatherers are the baseline of human normalcy. I'm going really deep here because you asked me to, but I will unpack it. So she says, small band hunter-gatherers are the baseline of human normalcy. Mm. And what does that mean, given that most modern humans don't live in that fashion at all? And the reason that she's saying this is because 95 to 99% of our lineage history, we were living in these small tribal bands. The context in which our brains, our nervous systems, our biology was optimized was this particular context where we had close reciprocal relations with a small group of people, and we were deeply embedded in the living world. And if you look through this lens, what is that modernity as we're experiencing it over the last 5,000 years has acceleratingly deviated from that context. And so we don't live anymore in a context that's giving our nervous system the kind of inputs that allow it to optimize well-being. So to summarize, there's two facets of this. Those cultures, above all things, prize relatedness. They prize connection to ourselves, to one another, to the living world. So there's this connection side of it. And then they have established really profound and regular practices on the healing side. And so there are two things that prevent us from optimizing that fullest version, experiencing that fullest version of ourselves. One of them is that we don't understand where well-being comes from, and we don't therefore do what's required to give ourselves the inputs around connection and relatedness that would allow us to feel that. And then we don't do a very good job of addressing trauma. And trauma in our conceptualization, it's not just overwhelming events. It's the trauma of social disconnectedness. It's the traumas of oppression. 
And it's the trauma of ecological alienation, which is so normalized in our modern culture that people don't even realize it's a trauma. How's that for a response to you? (laughs) Oh, wonderful. And there's so many things that I want to explore that are inside there. So I'm curious around the connectedness piece. What are the implications neurologically to our disconnect? It's an interesting question. The implications directly are that most modern humans are functioning most of the time in a suboptimal state. That's one way of saying it, right? Mm -hmm. If we're not feeling connected and we don't have the physiology of connection online, and we can talk specifically about what that, that physiology entails, but when we're in a connection state, basically what happens is that the heart is running the brain. We feel safe enough to open into relationship. And there's a whole set of things that happen in the physiology in terms of how our bodies operate, how it feels to be in our own skin, how we conceive of ourselves, what we're able to feel and think, how we interpret what's happening around us, and then how we behave. And this is really profound stack. It's like a set of lenses. It's like glasses that you can't take off your physiological state. We call it autonomic state. And so when you're not running that system, your body is in some kind of a defensive state. And there are only so many ways it can go, but it's either going to go to a high energy defensive state, which is a fight or flight state, some form of that, or it's going to go to a dorsal state, a paralysis, a shutdown kind of state, or some hybrid of those. Mm. And so those are distinct states and they have their own kind of distinct architecture and the ways that they shape our physiology, our awareness, our interpretation, all of these levels. But basically, we're not going to be able to bring our full potential forward. Can we talk about that dorsal state in particular? Because as you're talking, I'm thinking about the relationship between fundraisers and donors in particular, and what happens when fundraisers aren't able to show up in their wholeness to their work. And what's interesting to me about it is that their work is fundamentally relational, right? You would consider it to be perhaps at first glance, or if you don't know a lot about what it's like to actually be a fundraiser, a highly relational and connected role. But because I believe fundraisers are taught more and more ways to be disconnected from their wholeness, they are operating in a role that looks relational, but without their wholeness. So they're not getting the connection that you're talking about. And what I see from a pattern perspective in the folks that I work with is a lot of what I think is this dorsal response that you're talking about. So can you talk more about that and what that then does to our sort of decision-making and perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So let me first map out the theory through the lens of water, which I think gives your audience the most accessible way to understand this viscerally because I want people to feel it. The analogy that I like to give is to invite people to imagine that you've never been to earth before. You've never experienced water at all. You're drinking a glass right now. So you're drinking water. So Mallory is my trusted guide here. I've never been to earth before. And she takes out a glass and she's showing me liquid water. I've never seen it, never experienced it at all. She says, this is water. And I look at it and she pours some over my hand. And then she says, here, you can drink some. I drink it. It's cool. It's wet. It's nourishing. It feels a certain way going down my throat. And she goes, hey, this is water. I go, okay. And then let's say Mallory takes me to the kitchen and she has a teapot on the stove. And it turns on the stove and I can't see inside it. I'm just watching this metal pot. And then all of a sudden, this hot fog starts coming out of it. And I, at her encouragement, put my hand into it. And I pull my hand back because it's hot. It's wet burns my fingers. And I look at it for a minute, it's rising up in the air. And I say, Mallory, what is that? And she says, that's water. (laughs) 
And I think my proposal to you and to your audience is that if I hadn't watched that transition between those two states, I wouldn't believe they were the same thing because they have completely different properties. There's a threshold across which that substance transforms and it becomes something else. And water has a third state. So if we were to go outside in winter and you'd take me out to a lake or something that's frozen and get down on our hands and knees and I were to touch ice, feel it, right? It's solid. It's very cold. It has, again, properties that are completely different than both liquid water and steam. So the analogy to polyvagal theory basically says that your autonomic nervous system, which is functionally the architecture of your mind-body connection, and I'm going to say that one more time because I don't think people fully understand this. This is really important. The autonomic nervous system is the architecture of your mind-body connection. So it's the shaper of that relationship. And it can exist in one of three primary states. If we extend the analogy, we say that the connection state, the state we're talking about, that state of optimal well-being is the liquid water state. And when our nervous system is in that state, there's a certain way that it feels to be in the body. There's a certain sense of ourselves that we have. There's a certain access to feelings and thoughts. There's a certain way that we interpret the world around us and behavior is available to us. And when it shifts out of that, it either is going to shift into a high energy state that's like a steam state, or it's going to shift into an ice state. Now, the way that this is classically taught in trauma healing modalities is that when we feel unsafe, we'll often first go to the steam state. Steam has two flavors. Steam can either be steam, it's high energy, it's fight or flight which means it can either confront a threat or try to get away from it. And again, the way this is classically taught is if neither of those strategies work, we will go into the ice state or shutdown, which is technically called the dorsal vagal state. And the interesting thing about it is that often the thing that puts someone in a dorsal state is when they can't get away. And I want to be very considerate of your listeners because there may be like associations that are forming to other experiences they've had beyond fundraising. So I invite them just to be gentle with themselves as they're hearing this information. But in the context of fundraising, if you're in a meeting, and something starts to make you uncomfortable, but you can't leave because you have a professional duty to be there. But part of yourself isn't getting to be present, isn't going to show up. It's not hard to imagine that you shut down. So the first part is understanding kind of this map. And if I were to describe the attributes of that shutdown state, is that useful for people? It's a paralysis yeah. state. It's the oldest survival strategy embedded in a human biology. It goes back 400 million years. And the whole idea was to make yourself socially invisible. Like it's a death feigning state. In its most extreme examples, it's accompanied by the release of endogenous opiates. It's like your body thinks it's going to die. And so it starts to release painkillers, which is a grace, because if you're going to get eaten by a tiger, you don't want to be there. But it's not an embodied state. It's a doorway to dissociative states, right? If it's coupled with pressure, it's the doorway to dissociate. And so there's a thing about, I think part of the goal that I'm hearing in your work and this work that you're engaging is help people bring the fullness of themselves back into the room. And I think it's important to understand that when we start shutting down, there's an experience of paralysis. There's an experience of being stuck. As it gets more intense, people start to describe things as being like surreal or dream if it gets strong enough. But this continuum from just feeling, I don't really feel myself. I don't really, it's like a frozen kind of experience. Mm. I hope that gives like some kind of flavor for it. Yeah. As you were talking, I so appreciate the way you laid it out with the water because it also made me realize that I actually think we see the steam a lot in nonprofit fundraising too, what it tends to look like. And I'd be curious if this feels like it might be true is the overdrive state of lots and lots of different fundraising activities. We justify it as diversifying our fundraising revenue, 
But actually what's often happening is this very scattered fundraising approach where they are doing 10 to 15 different types of fundraising things, constantly context switching, keeping themselves very busy, but not particularly productive. And the action and the activity, I believe it soothes a sense of anxiety that they feel, but it's not fully embodied because it's not connected to activities that are actually going to be the most impactful for the organization. Because I think the activities that are going to be the most impactful to the organization are much scarier and more vulnerable and involve potential rejection. And so we tend to see fundraisers stay in this very busy state of fundraising activities that are farther removed, in fact, from deep connection. What do you think Hmm. about that? Does that even make sense? It makes sense. I don't have enough expertise in fundraising per se to validate it based on my experience in the sector, but the description of the energy feels right to me. And what I can say from my own experience in my own work, because there are times when I'm working with clients or prospective clients, that vulnerability of making a call to someone who you're asking for help. Basically, like the job is to ask. If you're in sales, if you're in fundraising, you're constantly opening yourself vulnerably to ask for help. And then there's a possibility of rejection. And there's a possibility not only of rejection, but it could be very with respect, or it could be like a horrible experience. And so I noticed just in myself, there are times when rather than doing that, because the place in which I have to be in myself in order to do that and stay centered requires a certain amount of work effort. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's easier to stay in other activities that kind of match the energy that you're talking about seeing in in fundraisers. Mm -hmm. So that's my experiential touch point into what you're describing. And Mm -hmm. I know for myself, yeah, like it's easier to be in that kind of high energy state. A characteristic, there are a few characteristics. It's just of the energy signature of a sympathetic state. It's high energy is one of them. It's mobilized. There's a lot of movement. That's a physiological characteristic of that state. And It's actually really interesting. Part of my own research and background was in the intersection between neurophysiology and mindful awareness. And part of the drivers of our research were that we were working with populations and we were finding certain kinds of meditative practices didn't actually meet their needs. And it's partly this, because when you're in a sympathetic state, the body is mobilized and being still doesn't feel good. So the body would rather move around, do almost anything than contact what's actually arising at a felt level. Okay. I have to reel myself in from all the directions I want to take this, but I want to actually double click on the phrase you just said around feel good, because I want to talk about discomfort and pleasurable or unpleasurable emotional experiences and whether or not there's a way to navigate those and stay in a liquid state. That's a great question. I'm going to tell you what's coming to mind. So I got back into playing tennis after 25 years and I had played competitively when I was younger and then I stopped and my daughter picked it up and then I started playing with her and I couldn't remember why I'd stopped because I love it. And then there was a moment where I was, I started to play a little bit more competitively and my body did this thing where it went into a shutdown and I had to go, okay, what happened when I was 18 and I stopped playing tennis? And there's a whole backstory behind it that I don't think it's super relevant to get into, but What I started to realize is that there are certain activities that I think of as being amplification windows for tracking your own state. 
first tea of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. And what I mean is that the difference between playing really well and having everything feel off is sometimes very subtle. And you can see this if you're watching a high level. It doesn't have to be tennis. It could be basketball. It could be any kind of elite athletics. When you're working at a high level where there is both, let's say you're playing, because play is actually a hybrid state. Play is sympathetic and it's connection. It's ventral and sympathetic both. And I think it's important for people to understand, like, even just to stand up, I need sympathetic activity. Like your body is constantly, it's modulating these states, right? The very foundation of what's called heart rate variability, respiratory sinus arrhythmia, is that your heart accelerates when you inhale and it decelerates when you exhale, which is why when someone's getting ready to sprint or fight, they'll often inhale intensely. And it's why yoga practices will tell you to extend an exhalation. Because your nervous system on the inhale is accelerating, that's sympathetic. On the exhale, it's decelerating, that's parasympathetic, hopefully ventral. And so your body's like constantly negotiating these states. So at one level, to answer your question, how do you stay in a ventral state when there's discomfort is that you call online enough ventral energy so that even when the sympathetic is activated, you still are in that play space. And this is a cultivation process that we can actively and consciously engage in. And you'll see people falling out of that state. It's very apparent with high-level athletics. And tennis is an interesting example because it's a one-on-one thing. Mm -hmm. And so in a team sport, you can lean on your team. But tennis is, if you get thrown off of your balance, and you'll see people like erupt into anger where they lose the ventral. And if they can't rein it back in, the momentum in a match can completely change. So I think there are these activities, these kind of amplification windows where you get to watch your nervous system very closely. And I think speaking about it in the context of fundraising, you can make fundraising your context for watching your own nervous system, for tracking it. And it's like, how do you help people get ventral resource? And then their first question is always a mindfulness, awareness. How do you notice when you don't have it? And then how do you get back to it? And just a very simple example of this for myself, once a friend of mine pointed this out, I realized if I was too sympathetic, one of the things I could do was hold a tennis ball in my hand and feel the texture of its surface. Because if you're not in a ventral state, you don't have access to that kind of nuanced proprioception. If stroke your own face or something, like there's all these things that you can only feel when you're connected ventrally. And so I would do that with myself. I would just take the ball and I would soften my palm until I could feel the texture again. And that was a way of calling my ventral system online. And our work is basically built around hundreds of exercises. These are neural exercises. This is what we do, is we help people develop a vocabulary of specific neural exercises that can address the specific ways that their systems are out of balance. There are hundreds of ways to do this, but it's that cultivation. So it's a tracking exercise. It's knowing where you are on this map. Am I drifting into steam? Am I drifting into ice? And then once I see, okay, where am I? What are the ways that I know how to get myself back out of that? I love that. Why is it that we often have a lot of resistance to doing the things 
that bring us back into our bodies? That's a really profound question. And I immediately can see between three and five layers of answer. And I think I'm probably missing another 10 or 15. Some of the answer, and I'm sure that I'm going to miss some things that are really foundational here. But some of the answer is that the culture is functioning in a sympathetic state. The cultural field in modernity is already steam. This is actually really important and it's really problematic because ancestral culture had restorative practices built into it that brought people out of steam and back into water. And we don't have those as a culture. So it's like you look around, everybody else is in steam. There's one layer of it that's like that. There's one layer of it, which is that states, they have a momentum already to themselves. So when you're in a sympathetic state, you crave coffee. And this is, has to do with stress physiology is that the stress response is designed to come on briefly in moments of need and then attenuate. Only when it starts to become chronic, it's not attenuating. And so when it becomes enduring, then your blood chemistry changes and your blood starts craving things to maintain that state. What does it crave? What well, craves salt and fat and sugar and all the things that you're not supposed to eat? Caffeine. Like the times that I most want to drink coffee are when I'm raising money. When we're in the middle of a funding round, like I find myself reflexively drinking coffee because it's so high intensity. So there's a momentum intrinsic to the state. And then I think the other thing is, I think there's grief here as well. I think there's something about, we don't have a context where our culture knows how to grieve and mourn. And a lot of this stuff is, it's upsetting and sad. And we're damaged by these things. We're harmed by these interactions. And so there's a way in which we don't have the kind of social safety and social support where we can come home. Again, in nonprofit culture, I know very few cultures where there was a context in a fundraising team where somebody could go back and weep about an interaction that was harmful. It's just not the way that the culture is created in most organizations. There's not even an awareness that it would be a good idea to do that. So there's not a safety organizationally. There's not a context for grieving. And so people just soldier on, I think. I think that that piece around the society is in steam is such an important piece. And it's related to something I had been personally grappling with a lot over the last maybe year or two, which is we've watched the self-care, quote unquote, industry explode. And I have found myself really struggling to find practices that actually felt good to me when I was absorbing the modern day cultures recommendations. And I even, I said this on another episode, I texted one of my best friends a few months ago and said, how do you relax? <laughs> because I feel like I am trying all these things and I'm not necessarily feeling the way it's being marketed that I will feel. Now, of course, I understand that's a marketing strategy, but I think what you just said is really blowing my mind around the fact that self-care strategies provided by STEAM will keep you in STEAM. Yes. It's rattling my thinking around this. What you said about ancestral communities providing experiences and opportunities to go back into our water state and those not exist. And not that they never exist. I have had spaces and yoga teachers and classes that have created those spaces. I think for me, I've created those spaces for myself in my home and with my partner, but the mass 
energy around wellness that we're seeing balloon into a market, into an industry, most of that, I think, and I'm curious what you think, is just more steam. Yeah, this is, we're in importantly deep territory here. So I agree with your analysis. There was a point where we stopped calling our work self-care because at some profound reality, what the polyvagal theory teaches us is that human well-being is it's social in nature. We don't do self-care. We do community care. We do reciprocal relationship. And I would say that polyvagal theory is just actually the tip of the iceberg in terms of what indigeneity and ancestral lifeways teach us, which is that well-being is not merely social because that's still anthropocentric. It's relational to the living world, to the ecology, to place, to the elemental reality of being on earth where we co-breathe with the trees that are around us. The entire structure of reality that we're in is providing a possibility for relatedness that most modern people are completely alienated from. I wrote a letter to the editor of the New York Times the other day because there was an article that was in there on meditation and being fidgety. And it was basically saying, even if you're fidgety, still do your meditation. And I wrote to them and I just said, listen, I'm not saying that mindful awareness isn't valuable because it's really important. But the thing that's not being articulated here is that a lot of people are fidgety, not because there's something intrinsically wrong with them, but because their nervous systems are highly activated because of trauma and because of this kind of constant state of threat that we find ourselves under. And so if we don't actually attend to that threat and we don't attend to the nervous system states it generates, then you're giving people really bad advice. And the reality is that when your system is in steam, there are certain kinds of inputs that are relevant to it that are different than if it's already settled. And forgive me, the, my critique of the mindfulness movement in the United States is that it doesn't seem to understand that the context out of which these practices originated ancestrally were cultures that were very much in the pace of the living world. They were very settled. And so bringing attention deeply inward when you're settled is a great idea. But if you're not settled, it's not actually useful necessarily. It can be highly contraindicated in certain states. And so the way that we in the self-care world talk to people about deploying their attention or engaging in certain practices doesn't take into account that when your nervous system is in a distress state, when it's steam or when it's ice, there are very specific kinds of inputs that are required to shift that state. Mm -hmm. And again, this is why we developed our work. This is the nature of our work. I've been studying this transdisciplinarily through six lenses for 25 years. We have a faculty of 60 people around the world, including 25 different lineages of healing, including 25 different cultures, because the work has already been done. It just hasn't been assembled in a way that modern people can assimilate. When you're in a steam state, you need something that meets you where you are. And it can help you shift down out of that. But if it doesn't start by meeting you where you are, it's not going to be useful. And the characteristics of that state are that it's mobilized and that your attention is focused on identifying the source of a threat. And so if a practice can't address those two things, you're not going to be able to connect into it. And you're going to end up feeling like, oh, I'm not good at this. I was not productive or I failed or something. Can you give us an example of a practice that would tap into those? There's, there's so many things I can give you. It's more useful, I think, to give you some principles. So if the state is, we want to start out by allowing the body to move. And so you talked about like yoga, right? Or you talk about like qigong or dance, or I've gone through periods of time when the energy moving through my body was so intense that even though I have meditated for close to 30 years, I couldn't meditate because my body wouldn't mm -hmm. sit still. So if you're trying to harness that kind of mobilized energy, 
It's a good idea to do it through movement. There's another characteristic of this theme, the defensive states generally, but particularly sympathetic states, which is that part of their design is to identify the source of the threat. And so the eyes are actively trying to figure out what is it that's making me feel uncomfortable. So allowing the eyes to rest on something, we do a very simple practice called orientation, which comes out of these somatically informed trauma therapeutic modalities. And it's just letting the eyes go where they want to go. It's using non-directive attention visually and doing it in a place where there are things that you enjoy looking at. Because the eyes, unlike some of the other senses, will settle into something they're enjoying. And so you're addressing, you're giving this body this opportunity to allow this, it's technically called a neuroceptive process. It's a non-cognitive neural evaluation of safety or danger, but you're letting the eyes do this thing that they want to do anyway in that state. But if they'll settle on something that they enjoy looking at, and then you allow that to become a doorway into feeling the body, they've found something that they like, and that can open the door to sensation in a way that's settling to your nervous system. Does that make sense? What we're doing is we're working with neural inputs through the different sensory channels, proprioception, these different kind of gateways in the body. But we're taking into account where we are starting in terms of these different states. I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate the piece you were saying at the beginning of that around meeting yourself where you're at. I think a lot of times we revert to beating ourselves up for the energy we have when it's not the energy we want to be bringing to that moment. I remember for me for a long time speaking, a lot of the advice I had been given when I would go public speak, it was around calming myself down before I walked on stage. And I always felt like I was in this battle with myself before I'd walk on stage until I finally realized that I need to dance my brains out. (laughs) (laughs) And now that I do that, I have three songs. I play them every time. The people I speak for a lot are always like, okay, Mallory, go do your dances. Um, (laughs) But it completely changed everything for me. And so I think just this awareness of where we're at and what we need, and that maybe the people who are giving me that advice, calming down was helpful for them for some reason. Maybe they were in a different space before they walked on stage and they did need those breathing tools and practices. But for me, it wasn't what I needed. And so I just, I really appreciate that piece. Will you give us a similar type of example for when we're in the, is it dorsal state, the ice state? Sure. Let me comment just first. I love your story because it's like, you found the medicine that works. You found the way to work with that energy because You can tell yourself cognitively, oh, calm down, but you're going in front of an audience like your body is having its own response to that. And you figured out a way to harness instead of suppress that energy. And I would propose probably after you do that, you bring your full vitality to your speaking. Whereas if you're like doing something to top down, calm yourself, your breath, you're actually suppressing the bodily knowing that's there. And I bet Mm. you probably didn't enjoy speaking as much when you did that. 100%. Absolutely. So it's beautiful. It's like you found the restorative practice. You found the antidote that gave you the full vitality that you needed in that moment. I love that story. So good for you. That's very cool. And I think it's also this beautiful thing where, like you said, for somebody, yeah, that may have worked. But if we think of ourselves and our nervous systems as a droplet of water, and the goal is to keep moving more of it into the liquid state, but most people are carrying some percentage of steam and some percentage of ice. And so based on your history and everything you've been through and what matters and mean what's meaningful mm-hmm. to you, that combination of the balancing and the restoration is going to be different. Most people, I don't know, modern people, when they're presenting often are thinking, I don't want to think when I'm presenting. 
I want to be presenting and connecting and contacting. That's a very different place to speak from. And so the way I'd prepare for that is very different than if I was going to recite something that I had memorized. So much more embodied thing. Okay, so you asked about the dorsal state. And so again, let me just talk about the level of principles. What dorsal means in the body is that we're in an overwhelmed state. That's what it means. And because it's this response of last resort, and I want to be clear that if people are like a blank slate, what we often see is that someone would try to respond through connection to something. And then if they couldn't do that and get safe, they would go into fight or flight. And if they couldn't do that and get safe, they would go into dorsal. That's called Jacksonian solution technically, which is the order that the, they happen in a, let's say a blank slate nervous system. But the reality is that nobody's nervous system is a blank slate and that we tend to have a pattern for how we respond to stress. And if we've gone dorsal a lot in the past, it doesn't take a full life threat to get us dorsal. That can become a go-to response. I think there's something very interesting right now that we're studying in our work because the classic idea and when I say classic, I'm talking about in the somatically oriented trauma therapies for the last 20 years has been that you come out of dorsal and sometimes you'll come back into sympathetic because often that was a state that just preceded it. And while I think this is often true, I think it's more true for men than it is for women. And I think there are a couple of different doorways out of this. So let me describe the state. Because dorsal is an overwhelmed state, when someone's trying to come out of it, what's often really useful is to have no additional information coming in. And so it's like, I think of cocooning yourself or like being in a place where you're, that you're totally safe. You don't have to think about it. You can curl up in a ball. It's my experience of coming out of dorsal states is that when you start to contact a dorsal state and actually feel it, it's so uncomfortable because these are states where the breathing will shut down. It's profoundly uncomfortable to make visceral contact with a dorsal state, which is my people will leave. But, and again, I wouldn't, recommend that people try this with a full-fledged dorsal state on their own, but I'm just mapping the physiology here. It was a deep diving reflex in, in these creatures and the breathing shuts down and the dorsal system is in the guts primarily. And so that kind of shutdown, when people are starting to come out of it, it will be a return to gut motility sometimes, like they start to burp or fart or just mm. feel that movement again. But this idea that you want to really minimize stimulation. And if someone's trying to help you come out of dorsal, the less that they're doing, it's like presence without pressure. Even looking someone in the eye when they're in dorsal can be overwhelming on the receiving. We've done some coaching with physicians around this because physicians, sometimes when they give a diagnosis, if it's a serious diagnosis, the patient will go dorsal. And if they don't understand what the subjective experience of that is, right? If somebody goes into a dorsal state, their cognition is completely offline. They're thinking it's not there. They can't process information coming in. To have somebody standing over them is totally overwhelming. It's a primal shutdown state. And again, it happens on a continuum. But when we're in a meeting and we start to feel trapped, that's a good signal that's coming on. And again, I'm bringing it into the context of a meeting. There's often a moment in my experience where you're sitting with a funder, your body might go, I want to get out of here. And if you suppress that instinct, your body is likely to go dorsal because we can override our own instinct to flee. And the thing that I say to people, like, I don't, forgive me, my focus is on sovereignty and people's well-being. So if that's happening to someone, my thing is find a reason to let your body do what it's telling you it needs to do. And you're like, oh, I got to attend to this. Find a reason to leave the room. I need to go to the restroom, whatever it is. Just say it however you need to say it, but let your body get out of the room and let yourself feel yourself leaving. Because often allowing the body to do that exit, like, Sometimes you don't even know why you want to get away. 
But if you have that felt sense, like I want to get out of here, find a way to let your body do it. Because if you honor that, it will restore the body's sense of agency. And then you come back into the room and you like to go to the bathroom. You, you go, what is happening for me? Why am I feeling like this? But you restore the body's participation in the process. And then you can come back or not. I love that advice. I love that advice. Okay. I could probably spend the next 10 hours asking you questions, but I want to be mindful of your time. Thank you so much for this conversation today. Will you tell everyone where they can find you, learn more about your work, interact with and learn from more of the tools that your team is putting out in the world? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Mallory. So we have a book out that's called Restorative Practices of Wellbeing. I spent a long time working on this 20 something years. And that's a great way for people to get familiar with the approach, how we think about it. That book is actually the analog app to a learning platform that we've spent many years developing with an extraordinary team. And that is at restorativepractices.com. A lot of our work is focused on working with clinicians and wellness professionals. There's also a list of providers that work with our platform there. And yeah, we'd welcome your audience. We have online courses that we teach. We do all kinds of stuff. Our faculty is absolutely extraordinary and transdisciplinary. Neurophysiology, ancestral awareness, mindful awareness, deep nature connection, anti-racist practice, and cultural linguistics. These are the areas we're focused on. Amazing. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Really nice to talk to you. All right, this conversation pretty much completely blew my mind, and there is so much in here that I'm going to be digesting for a long time. But here are the top things I'm thinking about today. Number one, I really appreciated the polyvagal theory framework and understanding our three states of being. Number one is the ventral, water, fluid, calm, connected, and easy state. The second was the sympathetic state, steam, high energy, alert, unsafe, aroused. And the third is the dorsal state, ice, shutdown, frozen, paralysis. This framework really helped me start to understand the different ways our nervous system responds and how we transition between the different states. Number two, fundraising can be highly relational if we show up from a place of wholeness that allows us to tap into clarity and confident decision-making. But when we're disassociated in our fundraising, it can be really problematic. And this is where we tend to hate fundraising. Number three, that story about feeling trapped in the meeting Oh boy, have I been there. And I bet you have too, where you suddenly are emotionally or physically shut down in a meeting. It was really important to hear that this is because we've lost the connection to ourselves and have entered this self-preservation or frozen state. And I love Gabriel's advice because we never want to feel trapped. So do what you need to do to exit the room and come back into your body, and then you can rejoin the meeting. Number four. If your fundraising focus is scattered, it's worth asking whether it's an attempt to ease anxiety and perhaps avoid a more vulnerable, even risky focus on deep connection. I know that I kept myself in a state of overdrive for many years because of this. And number five, I don't know if you could hear my brain explode when we were talking about self-care, but I cannot stop thinking about the fact that there are so many self-care strategies we're fed that actually keep us in a steam state and how important it is to meet ourselves where we're at and then find strategies that bring us back into a more connected and whole state. 
I cannot wait to start checking out the over 300 practices that Gabriel recommends and the database to help you align those strategies with your current nervous system needs. Okay, there are so many more takeaways and tips inside this episode, so head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Gabriel and all of his amazing work. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I am so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.